Hello and welcome to the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast, where we talk philosophy from the farm. I'm your host, Terence Lehew. Our guest today is Mark Shepard from New Forest Farm, author of Restoration Agriculture and the founder of Restoration Agriculture Development. Mark was kind enough to take the time to talk with us during the 2019 Moses Conference, where he was playing as a part of Sinister Dane and the Cosmonauts. Together, we'll be discussing the impact and the legacy of restoration agriculture, the STUN method on scale, pest control, Mark's adventures homesteading in Alaska, and much, much more. Be sure to enjoy today's episode with Mark Shepard. Mark Shepard, welcome to the show. Well, hi there. Thanks for having me. Thanks for taking time out of the Moses Conference to join us today. How long have you been coming to the Moses Conference? Oh, my gosh. I've been coming to the Moses Conference since 1995, I think it is, yeah. Actually, my um, trade show booth downstairs, myself and Clyde Mortimer with, um, uh, what's the equipment, the Howard Rotovators? We We were the first two trade show tables. Um, Faye Jones was a coordinator at the time. It's like, hey, Faye, can we set up a table and sell some stuff? It's like, sure, sure. It'll make us seem like a real conference. <laughs> so been there ever since. And, and that's really incredible because when I have friends that will come to this conference for the first time, they're like, wow, this trade show is just amazing. It's, it's hard to imagine that ever it was only a couple of guys there, because... There wasn't anybody. And then Clyde and I set up. Yeah, two tables. <laughs> that's fantastic. Switching gears a little bit, uh, you're pl- you played with Sinister Dane today, right. the band. Can you tell us a little bit about the band and how it got started? Oh, well, actually, uh, Elizabeth Henderson was going to be a keynote at one of the Moses conferences, and she wanted to do some, do some poetry, and she wanted background music for it. So she grabbed this guitar player guy and said, hey, will you, you know, play some background music? It was Faye Jones' ex-husband, so mm-hmm. that's how he got connected. So he was kind of fumbling along with it. It's like, oh, I know that song. And so I started playing a banjo, and he was playing the guitar. And then they, they said, all right, so we introduce you as somebody. And there was a guy sitting in the front row, and his name's Dane Thompson. He said, Sinister Dane. And because I knew he was Dane Thompson, I figured he was just naming us after himself. Alan and I never expected to play ever again. So we played then, and, and we've been playing for 20-some years ever since. So... Oh, congratulations. It's always one of those cool things to have uh, in your back pocket. That ability. I mean, music is underappreciated. It's also part of farming culture to a degree is to have that kind of the banjo music. If you can play, if you can play music, and if you can wash dishes, you've got you've got a place to stay and, and a job to do somewhere on this earth for the rest of your life. It'll work. <laughs> almost as good as farming, right? Almost, almost. Yeah. <laughs> what brought you into farming? Uh, I mean, agriculture in general, but then permaculture specifically. Yeah, it's kind of a long and roundabout story, but let's see. My uh, dad was always an organic. Um, gardener, he was part of the biodynamics movement. Okay, yeah. Way back in the in the, he was involved in the fifties even, and then you know I didn't get involved with it until uh, late sixties, early seventies, and so we had a huge garden and did compost, and we went to meetings every month, you know, on biodynamics and stuff like that. Biodynamics was around way before organics ever was, and still is around. And then um, I went to college, and you know. St- got a good job and all that kind of whatever and realized that I hated it. All I ever wanted to do was just be a bum and hang out in the woods and do my thing. 
So um, at first I tried mechanical engineering, it didn't work for me. So I went back to school for ecology, and that really resonated, you know, studying nature, studying nature. And then when I graduated from university, there basically were no jobs for ecologists. It was during the Reagan administration, big, you know, yeah. cutting, slaughtering of ecologists and all this kind of whatever. And it coincided with the closing of the Homestead Act in Alaska. And oh, yeah. so I hitchhiked north to Alaska and claimed um, uh, two different claims of land and lived there with my sweetheart for eight years, 300 miles from town, 3,500 feet up the side of a mountain. And, and my goal was, how do I live on this planet without destroying it? Mm-hmm. How do I live on this planet without destroying it? And so with my ecological understanding of the world, I tried to imitate, make an imitation plant community type that mm-hmm. thrived in the, in the subarctic that would actually provide me with my foods. And it was with that knowledge that I learned trying to apply it on the ground in a really, really harsh climate I said, hey, wow, we're onto something here. We can imitate natural plant community types no matter where you are in the world and stack it with food plants, fuel plants, medicine, fiber plants, and have, it's a, it's a contrived ecology, yeah. but it's analogous to, uh, it's a, a direct imitation of a natural plant community type. So why don't we take this to the farm belt and see if we can do it at scale and, mm-hmm. and start to supply some of our carbohydrates, proteins, and oils from an ecological system. And that was way back. Well, the first inspiration for that was like in 93. Wow. And I, I talked about it for the first time at a permaculture design course in Colorado because my interest in ecological design led me to permaculture. Yeah. And at that conference in Colorado, I met uh, another guy who happened to be from Milwaukee. He says, hey, I've got some investment capital in a place that I don't really appreciate it being why don't I go make the down payment on the property and you guys move down and, and set up this permaculture farm and do it at farm scale. And so that's basically what I've been working on for the past 25 years of my life is designing and managing um, a, you know, a agricultural property that's designed after a natural ecosystem yeah. and using it to pay its own way forward. The caveat there, <clears throat> I'm not getting rich yeah. doing the farming thing, okay? Yeah. But the farming pays for itself. It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's profitable in its own way. It's not wildly profitable. I'm not making six figures a minute kind of thing. Um, but it pays its own way. And, and it's work. Yeah. It's work. There is a little bit of a myth in permaculture. It's, oh, it's so easy. The food just falls off the trees. Well, you know, it's a little bit more difficult than that. You, know, you have to actually go pick the food up. Mm-hmm. Then you have to process the food. You have to do it in a USDA you know, GAPS certified packing shed, food processing, kitchen, blah, blah, all the licenses and laws, organic certification. So there's a lot of expenses embedded, a lot of hassles embedded in it. Um, but it's possible. You can do it. When, you know, in, in some of the more successful uh, ecosystem mimicked operations that I know of, they're based on either poultry or cattle as, as the core enterprise. Um, our enterprise was, was um, focused around produce because... Um, we're located right smack dab in the center of Organic Valley Universe, and oh, so yeah. it didn't matter what produce we grow, we could sell it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, you also have fruit, nuts and fruits. Correct. Well, the operation. Yeah, and, and actually that was, that was the target. 
Mm-hmm. How do you get there? You know, um, you know, uh, if you're going to do like an orchard, you can, you know, have some investment capital and mm-hmm. you can invest in all of the trees to have this orchard. And then you spray it, do herbicide mowing, uh, tree guards, you know, all this other hoo-ha for five to seven years before you start to get a crop. Yeah. So by the time you start to you know, harvest chestnuts, for example, you're out $150,000 um, on, a, on a 10 acre plot of chestnuts. Um, that's without ever harvesting anything. Well, I didn't have seven years to, to wait around blowing my money um, uh-huh. before I got a harvest. So we had to harvest beginning right away. We started with annual produce while our trees were maturing. And the, the primary plant community type, and anybody, no matter where you live, just look up natural plant community types of blank, wherever you're from. And then you look at the, the tall trees, medium trees, you know, shorter trees, shrubs, cane fruits, vines, shade-tolerant perennials, uh, and then obviously grasses and animals. Mm-hmm. And you can have a full, complete system with those layers in place. I imitated the, the one that on New Forest Farm in southwest Wisconsin was um, oak savanna plant community type. Uh-huh. And the upper layer is oak, chestnut, or beech, understory of cherry and apple, um, shrub layer of uh, plum and hazelnut, um, Cane fruits, obviously, blackberries and raspberries. Vines were grapes. Shade tolerance were currants and gooseberries. Grass all over the place. And because you're producing all this biomass, it's got to decay somehow. So there's all of the edible mushrooms, medicinal mushrooms, Mm -hmm. that are part of that system. And then the animals are the um, the main caretakers of the whole property. They're the management team. That, that takes care of it all. So you're literally stepping <coughs> every level of ecology Correct. possible, literally to the sky. The sky's the limit. Yep, it is. And, and then, you know, the thing is, is, is we can walk away from that place and it'll be productive with food for human beings and wildlife in perpetuity. You know, however long these trees live, it'll, they'll, it'll be there. I heard Andre Liu give a presentation once on pesticides, basically. In that system, do you have an issue with pests, or does the system kind of take care of itself so you don't have to do any spray? Well, in that system, we have every pest you could possibly imagine because we have all the different foods that we mm-hmm. have you know, available to them. Just take apples for one example. There's well, all kinds easily. of pests on apples. Well, when you have an integrated ecology with other organisms involved, first of all, it's not a monocrop of apples. Uh-huh. So we've got this diversity that's harder for the pests to find the apples trees because they're mixed in with other species. Then um, part of the management uh, practices in the early spring, as soon as the snow is gone, there's poultry out there, and they're scratching up the ground, and as soon as it warms up, they're, the f- they're eating the first emerging pests. So they're the first wave of pest control. Um, then in June, there's what they call the June drop. At least it's in June around here. It's earlier some places, later some other places. The June drop is caused by the first pests lay an egg in the apple, and once that that critter hits the core of the apple, some kind of chemical signal goes to it, and it decides to abort the fruit. Yeah. So the fruit falls to the ground with a, with a worm in it, uh-huh. um, a pupa, and then it would crawl, or actually a larva, then it would crawl out, pupate in the soil. Well, as soon as the June drop starts, we can turn the pigs loose out in the orchard, and they go through and they eat up all the apples. So the chickens are the first line of defense to eat all those first emerging pests, the one that they miss, um, the June drop cleans up that first huge emergence uh, that's in there. Well, then, because we don't use any any pesticides otherwise, and we have uh, little micro water catchments all over the place, we have seven different species of amphibian that hang out there. There's bats flying around all over the place. Uh, we have a pretty intense natural pest control going on. 
Well, now fast forward, go to the end of the season. When we're harvesting fruit, some fruit has have pests in it. So you throw that yeah. on the ground. You can't do that. You're going to, you know, help infect the rest of the orchard. Well, we're doing that on purpose because we pick the good fruit, mm-hmm. throw the fruit with pests on the ground, and when we're finished picking that block, block, you move the pigs in, and they go clean up the pests once again. Timing is important because you have to have uh, no livestock in an orchard that's intended for human consumption for a uh-huh. period of time. Yes. So there's all these different um, uh, the details of how to manage that system don't have time to get into here, but but it's all it's all entirely possible. Once the pigs have cleaned up all of the fruit on the ground, now it's leaf fall, and we'll send the cattle in, mm-hmm. and the cattle will remove the lower branches. They break branches off and yes. they browse the lower branches, yes. which helps to give you fungus um, c- uh, control because it's it's a fungus spore splashing from a leaf on the ground. It hits an apple leaf on the tree, then it splashes again. It just climbs up the the spores keep climbing up the tree, but if there's a gap of three to five feet down below, those spores splashing up on the ground can't strike an apple leaf, and so you don't get as much fungus spread. So we're reducing fungal pressure that way. And the cattle, when they're out there, it's the time of year that the the last bit of green grass is out in the in the uh, where we're harvesting fruit, yeah. because prior to harvest we'll mow, so it's short. Then we harvest. Uh, move the pigs in, and then uh, move the cattle in after the pigs when the grass is just starting to regrow. So they eat a lot of the leaves on the apple trees that have different fungal spores on them. So those different ways all have an effect on controlling pest and disease pressures in the orchard. And depending on the year, depending on how much livestock we have, timing issues, travel, all that kind of whatever, it's it's a, a beautiful, delightful chaos. Yeah. <laughs> a beautiful chaos. I think it's could organized chaos. An organized yeah. chaos. Yeah. It, it really is wonderful to see the natural system working. Is this system possible without livestock? <laughs> it is, but then you have to um, understand how an ecosystem works. An ecosystem has all these different functions that take place. There is no ecosystem on planet Earth, period, that exists without animals. And so if you want to go in and have a system where it doesn't include confined animals or owned animals or enslaved animals or whatever you want to call it. If you want to have a no livestock farm, you can do it. However, there are functions that an animal does within an ecosystem mm-hmm. that have to be performed. And if, if the animals aren't performing them, you have to. So by eliminating the function of animals, you now have to take on that function yourself. And so you literally become a draft animal on your own operation at that point. Yeah, and, and you're, you know, you're mowing grass and you're recycling you know, green stuff and making compost instead of letting an animal eat grass and poop it out the back end kind of thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. It, and, and, and even if you don't have livestock, you're going to have animals. Yeah. You're going to have wild pigs, wild mm-hmm. turkeys, deer, you know, birds all over the place, everything. Mm-hmm. I have to say one of my favorite functions of a cow is that it turns grass into fertilizer and it also turns it into steak. Right. That, that's a nice little... Uh, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a pork man myself. But <laughs> you know what? A good pork roast. A good grass-fed hazelnut and chestnut finished pork roast, slow cooked on the, on the wood stove all day. Yeah, you bet. Here's the problem with this show. I always end up hungry. Why not? I mean, why not? That, that's the reason we do this. So it's been five years since your book, Restoration Agriculture, was published. How have you seen the impact from that book? Have you seen a lot of it resonating with people, a lot of this stuff getting applied by farmers? There was, there was actually 
I, and I didn't realize it. It was, it was why the book became so popular. Is there were a lot of people who were frustrated with all the different modalities of, mm-hmm. you know, permaculture or perennial yes. agriculture, whatever it was at the time, and they knew they were onto something, and they didn't quite know what it was. And then my book came out, and it gave them permission to be them. It's like, hey, look, you know, what I'm doing is is okay. It's right. It's on the right track. I knew I was up to something, but I never put it into words. So many people have told me that over and over again. And then. I've definitely seen a lot of, uh, you know, uptake, people starting the practices. And there's also people who have been playing with words, trying to say, well, we're not just doing restoration, we're doing regeneration. <laughs> well, what, what that is, is that's a misunderstanding yeah. of ecology. Mm-hmm. Because uh, in ecology, we'll, we'll restore an ecosystem. Part of a restored ecosystem is regeneration. Regeneration yeah ecologically means the ability of a population or a plant community type or an ecosystem itself to propagate itself, expand its range, and, you know, adapt to change according to the disturbance regime of its place. And so the folks who say, well, we do more than restoration, we do regeneration, they miss the whole point, is that you do the restoration and regeneration is part of it. Yeah. Because if... if you have all these plastic hoops and you're building all the carbon carbon in your soil and you're calling yourself regenerative, and, and if a fire comes through, like I know these places in California, and burns it to the ground, if it if it can't pick itself up and rebuild itself, it's not it's not regenerative. It has to be able to regenerate itself. And a restoration, the word was chosen on purpose to immediately, you know, tie itself to restoration ecology as we are, we're putting ecosystems back into a restored state so they now are fully functional on their own within their disturbance regime of an area with the rainfall of the area, the soil types of the area, and they're self-perpetuating and, and they regenerate through time. It is incredible. I've recently been talking with another guy we've had on the show before a couple of different times, Scott Hebert, and We've talked about how great books, books that we really enjoy, they're the ones that they articulate an idea that's like at that periphery. We, <laughs> we know it's there. It, it's it's there. It's just it hasn't quite formed into words. And then an author comes around and takes the idea and puts it into words. And those are the books that tend to be most meaningful. Well, and what I had to do is my, my problem was it's like people ask me what I'm doing. And it's like I didn't have a sound bite for what I was doing. Yeah. So I just had to explain, all right, look, it's not a scientific treatise. It's not, mm-hmm. you know, it's not a how-to manual. It's like I'm explaining. This is what I did. Yeah. And this is why I did it, and this is how it works. Well, and that's cool with New, uh, New Forest Farm is that you, you, it is, you literally see it. It's not like you're simply going, well, this is the idea and conception of the theory that I'd right. love you to try. You've actually done this yeah and there's so many people i've seen like a lot of people reviewing it. i've seen numerous flaws in his arguments it's like dude i'm not arguing anything look here it is come walk in it you know and and can new forest farm or could new forest farm be way more productive than it is right now absolutely sure you know um, like i said why did i get into agriculture way back when because i just wanted to be a bum i'm a lazy bum you know i'm i'm working more on the on the breeding of plants that survive sheer total utter neglect than I am on producing the highest crop yields that I possibly can. And and I'm not interested in working my arse off anymore. Yeah. I'm just not into that anymore. Well, and I think that that's so much of the quality of life to go is where do you find your joy in agriculture? It, you can work yourself to the bone to make as much money as you possibly, but 
when you do that, you're just doing what someone else expects or wants. Right. I mean, unless that's your drive. And your numbers look good. It's great. Yeah, you know, but... One, one of the things that I like doing is is also, you know, playing music and sitting around the campfire and, and singing ridiculous songs, you know, about pesticides and herbicides and environmental social justice. <laughs> So how have you seen your work evolve in the last five years since the book's publication? Um, my work uh, in the last five years, I'm doing a lot more uh, design and installation for other farmers. You know, you can do it yourself. Go for it. It's a blast. Yeah. But there's many people that just don't want to be bothered with the do-it-yourself. It's like, hey, set it up, design it for me, mm-hmm. and let's go. There's a lot of... A lot of um, uh, folks out there in the regenerative, I'll put it in quotes, regenerative yeah. space that are doing farm design, you know, sustainable farm design and all that kind of stuff. And you go see them, they walk around your place, they draw you a pretty, pretty picture, they generate all the maps, and there you go. It's like, well, that's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is we go out, we survey the land, and we drop a bulldozer blade, and we start making ponds and swales, uh-huh. lay out alleys and cropping systems and plant the trees, and, you know, you're good to go. We'll do everything from you know, sit down and have a conversation and walk around the farm to absolutely everything, design it and install it and plant all the trees. That is, it, it's pretty cool because it is, it's more than words versus action. Right. We can always say something. Doing it is an entirely different matter. Uh, to somebody, <laughs> one of the things I've noticed, you asked earlier question about uh, what I've noticed about writing a book. You write a book and people start memeing you. Yes. And as long as they meme me from words that I actually said, I'm okay. There's some memes out there. That's, I was like, look, man, I didn't really say that, but they, I can't. How do you stop something that's out there? One of the ones that recently came out, it was done in my tone of voice. So uh, I could see uh, it could be me. It says, look, until you have biology in the ground, you haven't done anything. It's like, all right, all right, maybe I did say that. But, <laughs> so. Because, you know, yeah. we can talk about this all we want. We can draw pretty pictures. We can get the GPS and the satellite imagery, this, that, and the other thing, and all these flow models that look at the mm-hmm. landscape until you're actually changing the, the biology and the ecology of the planet. You're not doing anything. You're just, you know, spinning your wheels, mental masturbation and all that. <laughs> uh, that that's a good soundbite that I'm definitely <laughs> going to remember. Uh, we actually had a question from Greg Burns. Uh, hey, Greg Burns, how are you? <laughs> Zanesville, Ohio, great guy. He's been on the podcast before. Right. Uh, his question was, would you adapt or change the STUN method approach in smaller farmstead contexts? And, and he did specify smaller farmstead would be something less than 20 acres producing primarily for their own consumption. Um, if it was primarily for your own consumption, not necessarily. But one, one of the things that that is critical stun, sh- strategic total utter neglect or sheer total utter neglect, however you want to see it. Um, when you're talking about ecological processes or processes for the Canadians that listen to this podcast, there are certain things that occur at a certain scale. If you look at how fast a fruit fly reproduces, they're super, super fast. You can have a complete fruit fly ecology on a quarter, you know, the mm-hmm. size of a quarter. If you're talking about something like herds of bison in the American West, you need hundreds of thousands of square miles in order to have ecological processes play out and have it be a balanced ecosystem, like the Serengeti where I just came from. So something with like pest and disease resistance in plants, um, which is very critical for the smaller homestead and backyard grower, 
when you set up uh, an ecological system in your backyard, you've just created an oasis for all the pests and diseases that are trying to escape from your neighbors who are using sprays. Yeah. So they come to you, and you may not have enough apples, for example, to feed enough apple pests Mm -hmm. that are necessary to attract apple predators. And so at that scale, um, you would have to be observing real closely and say, how much damage am I willing to tolerate? Mm-hmm. And, and I think you should still allow some damage and keep track of how much is occurring to which plants, because now you're going to learn from more from data which mm-hmm. ones are the more resistant and more susceptible then, like in my case, I'll just like turn them loose. And if you know, if the, if, if the insects or diseases eat you to the ground, good, good riddance. I don't care. That's mm-hmm. my data. Yeah. Whereas you may need to keep track more closely, and and you know, count percentages of fruit that are clean versus you know, pest ridden, etc. So yeah, smaller scales, you don't have the same um, ecological scale in place mm-hmm. to have. Uh, as effective pest and disease control as you can at a larger scale. Mm-hmm. Well, what I think is interesting about all this is it, we talked. You talked a little bit about uh, letting certain varieties flourish and see which ones don't work. That's part of why I think it's so fascinating about this is it's letting the natural process work its way right, out. Right. Systems that don't work won't continue. We see in industrial agriculture yep. be a little critical of it at the moment, but in industrial agriculture. It's a system that doesn't self-support itself, and we see it starting to decay. That's why I think it's incredible. We see natural systems mimicked in everything. And and especially, like, if you're talking pest control, Mm -hmm. and and since we're at an organic conference, we might as well address organics, too. If if you're a chemical farmer and you see a pest population increase to a critical threshold, then Uh you spray. Well, what happened is you were building a population of a pest to the point where it was almost enough to feed a predator that would help to control it naturally. Um, and then you you squash that population, and it starts over, and it goes right back to the same phase. It's going to build back up to that critical phase again, and then you spray it again. That's over and over and over. Well, if you're an organic farmer, the same thing is going to happen. As soon as your pest population gets up to a certain threshold, it's an economic threshold, you spray, it's just a different kind of spray. Yeah. That's that's less toxic mm-hmm. and maybe it was derived from a, a ground up flower or a root or whatever so it's a lot better for the environment you can actually probably grow some of these yourself and you probably have an integrated system with you know habitat islands for predators and all that kind of stuff so it's a better system all around but the process of spraying when a pest reaches a critical threshold is fighting against nature and human beings have never won that game <laughs> we have never won that game it, it, that that is uh, very true, and not only that, what you're doing is you're creating pests who are re- then resistant to whatever you're spraying. Right, it, All right. That that's one of the worst things possible. That's why that's because they're the same as for for herbicides, and that's why the majority this year is not um, Roundup ready. It's all dicamba because Roundup is becoming less and less effective against weeds. It's crazy. It was only predicted. <laughs> The thing I love most in what I get to do is I try to look at a very historical view of agriculture. Right. And so I actually went back down to reading some of the things that like Cicero or some of the Romans wrote about agriculture. What I find fascinating is the main talking points were not enough uh, losing organic matter, bad crop rotations, and stripping the earth of all of its nutrients. 
Gee, where have I heard this before? Doesn't this sound familiar? (laughs) I'm like, we've been writing about this for centuries, and the solutions have always been there. Livestock, good crop rotations, improving the ecology rather than robbing it. And and perennialism. And perennialism. Perennialism. I mean, using these plants. And and it's relationship between the plants, the the management, livestock, and the actual plant life itself. We, We need that rotated economy that work together instead of trying instead to extract. Instead of fighting against, yeah. And if, and if you do your homework, do your history, um, uh, every culture that it's based at staple food crops diet, that's carbohydrates, proteins, and oils, that's based at staple food crops diet on annual plants has ended up in, in ecological collapse, social collapse, economic collapse. Every single one of them. And yeah, that... Of course, we're different. We make walls between ourselves and other countries and, you know. Yeah, because <laughs> we're, we're so much better. Uh, that This isn't true, folks. We're just being a little sarcastic here. So switching topics a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we are at the Acres Conference. That was where I got a chance to hear you speak right. on the water management. What made you decide to explore more about water management? It was in restoration agriculture what made you decide to expand on that as the next book uh well well for one i first heard about you know managing water on agricultural properties in um a book by j russell smith called tree crops and he mentions Mm -hmm. these high back terraces you know to to prevent uh, erosion and overflow and i was able to see you know in in places around me about all this erosion and floods and stuff like that and so that was kind of really got going in my mind well then in restoration agriculture trying to describe some of the major uh, um, worldviews of how water is managed on farms. And it's like, I can't do this in one chapter. So in a cha- one chapter, I punted. I basically introduced <laughs> it, talked about it, says it's important, do it, and then walked away. Well, the book Restoration Agriculture actually was supposed to be six books. Okay. Restoration Agriculture is an overview. And then these follow-ups will be, you know, a... a more dialed in approach to each one of the major major points and okay. what since water management is so critical no matter where you live you know that's the first one to come out and and it's <laughs> the the book has turned into a um, let's just say a bizarre twisted nightmare because every time we come up with something and we're almost finished something else comes up and changes what we had learned earlier uh, so it's uh, almost there 99.99 percent there <laughs> Next couple of weeks, I'll be done with my part. How about that? Hey, that's, that's then it's great. all at the editor. Yeah. I'm looking forward to reading it. it <clears throat> I've always kind of taken for granted myself. I, I just hadn't thought of it. But then even after, literally just after I listened to your session, it was the last one I went to at Acres, I'm then driving to visit my friends out in Tennessee. And as I'm driving, I'm seeing these hillsides that are just, you see where the water's been going through. You see yeah. the erosion. You're going, holy crap. crap. Dear goodness, we're losing our topsoil. Fast. Oh, that's actually good news. USDA says uh, on average we're only losing two millimeters of topsoil per acre per year. That's, you know, the United States' largest export by weight is soil. That comes from, that comes from a book called A Geography of Hope. It's like, hope? <laughs> Anyways, yeah. Well, Mark, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us here at the conference. Where can people go to learn more about you and your work? Well, you can go to um, 
one of my couple websites. One is restorationag.com. That's the Restoration Agriculture Development Company. We're the consulting farm design and install crew. You know, we have everything from civil engineers to, you know, designers uh, and ecologists on staff. And one of the things that we're quite proud of is every single one of us who works with restoration agriculture development, we live this way. We don't just talk about it. We live this way. And then the other one is uh, the tree and shrub nursery, forestag.com, F-O-R-E-S-T-A-G.com. And that's our um, edible woody crops nursery. We're uh, most well-known for the Midwestern bush-type hazelnuts. We're the largest producer of the hazelnuts in the, um, in the uh, Midwest. Uh, and, of course, chestnuts and pine nuts. So those, those are th- big three, are um, hazelnuts, chestnuts, and pine nuts. So that's how you can get in touch with us. Well, thank you again, Mark. Yeah, thanks for having me. Big thanks again to Mark for taking time out of the conference to talk to us. It was a great conversation. Links to Mark's work can be found in the show notes, which can be found at intellectualagrarian.com forward slash Mark Shepard. If you're new to the show, we'd appreciate if you would subscribe, whatever your podcast player choice is. While you're there, please leave us a nice review, letting others know how great the show is. Tips on how to subscribe can be found at intellectualagrarian.com forward slash subscribe with links to all your favorite podcast hosts and tips on how to leave a review can be found at intellectualagrarian.com forward slash review. Thank you again for listening. This has been Terrence Lahue and the Intellectual Agrarian Podcast reminding you to keep farming the dream.